Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Spencer Bonsoff, professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics and director of the Center for Environmental and Resource Economics Policy at North Carolina State University. His primary field of study is the economics of environmental policy, especially related to land use. Um, We're not going to be talking too much about land use today, however, or at least not exclusively. Uh, We're going to be talking much more holistically about the field of environmental economics as I chat with Spencer about his new book entitled Pricing the Priceless, A History of Environmental Economics. Uh, The book came out late last year, late 2023, and its themes will be familiar to many of our Resources Radio listeners. But Spencer pulls in some really wonderful additional historical context and sheds new light on how the discipline came to evolve into what it is today. Stay with us. Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for joining me here on Resources Radio. Hi, Kristen. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, Okay, so I'm just going to say, I'm going to start today's recording with one of my uh, more creative, one of my potentially wackier introductory questions. <laughs> um, it, it's something I've actually wanted to ask you for quite some time. So so here we go. Uh, Spencer, are you a fan of orchestral music? And I promise I will explain while I'm asking, but let me just start with asking that. I am a fan of orchestral <laughs> music. <laughs> okay. Well, I had a feeling you might be because um, I think I inherited your old phone number from the several years that I believe you spent <laughs> at Resources for the Future because every, I'd say twice, I got phone calls from the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra asking me on your behalf if I would like to support them. And you know what? I would because I too am a huge fan of orchestral music. But this was my tiny lens into you from a distance as someone who had moved to Atlanta and liked orchestral music. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about you too besides those random bits of information. That's funny. I have to, well, I have to interject a story because one of my first jobs, uh, say after high school, was working um, as a telemarketer for the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. No way. So these things come around, I guess. (laughs) I made a lot of those phone calls. There we go. Yep. Um, Well, so you are an environmental economist by training. Maybe can you say just a little bit about uh, why the discipline appealed to you in the first place and how you kind of got on this path? And then we'll talk a little bit more about, about the book itself. Yes. I think uh, I always liked economics. When I went into to college, it was one of the short list of majors I had in mind. I didn't know environmental economics necessarily, but I was intrigued by the idea in my Econ 101 class of market failures, um, as they're sometimes called, uh, reasons why markets might not deliver an ideal um, outcome. Um, that seemed to be you know, something to think about, something more interesting than just uh, sit back and let markets work. And then it just happened um, that my first job after college was at Research Triangle Institute, um, working as a junior economist with Bill DeVoge, Reed Johnson, Rick Dunford, uh, all environmental economists who were wonderful mentors for me and um, got me on the path that I'm on now. Okay. Yeah, I don't think the uh, effect of good mentorship and good kind of initial contacts can be understated. So I'm not surprised to hear that you had some great people sort of showing you the path and and encouraging you to join them on it. So that's great. 
Um, Well, as I mentioned at the outset, so your new book is entitled Pricing the Priceless, A History of Environmental Economics. Obviously, a topic near and dear to your heart, given your own field and your own kind of areas of research interest. But what took you from, you know, kind of a field of study for yourself into really a desire to dig into the history of the field and, and write this book? Yeah. Well, I've always been interested in history as well. Um, and I had another wonderful mentor as an undergraduate at Duke University, Neil DeMarkey, to whom the book is dedicated. Um, he was a historian of economics, um, helped me on what was arguably my first uh, research project, my undergraduate thesis in history. And uh, so those, those twin uh, those twin sets of mentors have been really um, important over time for me. And, I, and so the opportunity to combine history and environmental economics um, was very appealing. I, and just stepping back from that specific experience, I think I just, I think in terms of, of narratives, I, I imagine most people do, narratives and stories and uh a broader story of the history of environmental economics is, is very interesting because it can avoid the presentism of just thinking that what's happening in the present is the most important and only truth out there. Um, and it gives one a chance to explore the more enduring themes. That's a wonderful answer. And frankly, it makes me want to write a book myself. Um, so yeah, great answer. All right. Well, with that very uh, kind of um, compelling background for why you choose to write this book. Let's talk a little bit more about the substance of it. And I want to pull out um, the title as a starting place here. So Pricing the Priceless. Uh, the title of the book really speaks to a tension that you note is at the heart of the writing that you did. And so, you know, that tension is sort of how do you place a value on something which at times has been deemed to be sort of incalculably valuable and at other times has really, you know, been something to be monetized and used. And so I'm going to I'm going to start there and just ask you to sort of talk about that tension or that dilemma a bit more fully before we get into any more details. Yes. So as as you said, it, the the title is pricing the priceless, and then and then you use the word value. What is the value of of some landscape or ecosystem or some aspect of the natural environment? And I think part of that tension is what do we mean by that word value? Uh, there are different meanings that different people have brought to that word or or have in mind when they use that word, different meanings over time and in different places from different groups. Um, one meaning is that um, it's a very intrinsic, inherent value of something. You know, what is the value on something uh, that exists uh, in the world, something maybe that God created. Uh, it's When you think about it in those terms, it is very hard to put a price on something. And then we also use the word value in more narrow ways, more maybe economic ways. And one example of that is that we're, we have in mind a, a very materialistic, instrumental value for something. What is a resource's value in a production process or to be used in some very particular way. Um, and, and there the word resource that I just used is, is quite a posit because it's something that is, well, just, uh, just to repeat, is being used for something else. Um, but then another way that we think about value, another economic way is 
that it's related to the trade-offs involved in using it or in preserving it. And those different kinds of economic meanings of the word value, the, the, the materialistic or instrumental input kind of sense of the word and the sense in which there are trade-offs involved, those different meanings um, have evolved along with the evolution of how the field of economics has understood itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know I know that you also mentioned that, you know, for a long time, I think I'm actually quoting here, that when you said for so long, it seemed impossible to account for the environment economically. Um, so, you know, it was a it was a tension that was acknowledged, um, but it was a tension that for a long time felt impossible to resolve. And so um, it sounds like that's also part of the history of environmental economics is actually looking for opportunities and ways to not just say, whoops, we can't do anything about that, but to actually move the discipline forward in incremental ways and sort of make progress. Is that is that a fair way of characterizing your thesis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most most economics textbooks today would define the field around uh, trade-offs. It would say something like uh, economics is the study of how people have um, given objectives and they have scarce means of obtaining those objectives. So whenever they use those means, those resources, whether it's time or anything else, there are trade-offs, we might say opportunity costs involved. But before World War II or even until the 1960s, uh, most economists understood their field as being about material welfare. So when economists were asked to think about the immaterial aspects of environmental values, the, the value of enjoying a, a recreation trip or the, the value of the existence of a scenic landscape, uh, a lot of economists just said it can't be done because that's not material. We're we're a, a material science. We're a science about material values, and that's immaterial. So that's outside the scope of economics. That changed over time. Yeah, and and you highlighted that too is really a key theme of the book is that transformation from this field that was focused on material welfare to this field that was really about the study of trade offs and and how that kind of gave room for a whole new field of economics. So let me ask you about another key theme of the book as well. Um, and I'm going to quote again, you wrote that quote, a central theme of this book is that the humble applied work of agricultural economists played a particularly important role in the formation of environmental economics, both because of the content of their work and their outlook. Unquote. So I know that was a long quote, but I loved it. Well, first of all, I loved the word humble because it's sort of, it's, illustrated the foundationality of this work in such a nice way. But I, I guess I wanted to sort of get into that a little bit more and ask you, um, you mentioned the content of their work and their outlook. So what content and what outlook really drew you to reach the conclusion that you reached? Yes. Well, agricultural economists, of course, are looking at uh, farms and farmland. And they were thinking a lot about land as a resource. And they were asking, you know, what, when we say land is a resource, what do we mean by that? What is land? What, what is a resource? And their analysis of farmland and land generally as a resource um, brought them into questions, uh, first of all, about how uh, the quality of a resource can be improved through investments such as manuring the land, say, or um, how it can depreciate, how it can be drawn down. If you 
if you don't uh, make those investments, if you don't take care of uh, the soil, if you deplete it through certain crops, if you let it erode and so on. So they were thinking about the quality of a resource very carefully, as well as the dynamic aspects of it. So that's one um, aspect about the, the content of their work. Um, along with that, they were thinking very carefully about property rights and what institutional arrangements lead to the better conservation of the quality of farmland or not so good conservation. They were thinking here in particular about whether or not a farm is owned outright by the farmer or whether there's some other kind of tenure system if someone's renting their farm. Maybe their incentives to take care of the soil quality aren't as good. So those considerations about property rights um, come very close to the kinds of concerns environmental economists have today about common property and externalities. And then a third area of, of content was that because agricultural economists were very interested in commodities prices, uh, they were doing a lot of early work, and here I mean the 1920s, they were doing a lot of early work in the 1920s on forecasting prices and estimating demands for agricultural uh, commodities. And that focus on the demand side by a number of economists, Holbrook and Elmer working, George Kuznets, uh, he's a little later, Mordecai Ezekiel would be on the early side. Their kind of work in that area, I think, was foundational for a lot of early environmental economics, thinking about the demand for environmental quality. And then last of all, in terms of their outlook, in the first half of the 20th century, agricultural economists were in government um, much more than any other field of economics. They were just dominating. Um, that's in part because the Department of Agriculture uh, was early in hiring a lot of economists, so they hired very many. So they were uh, there first, and then when other departments of the U.S. government were hiring more economists, they sort of were spreading out from the Department of Agriculture. But that that work in government, as well as the work as uh, advisors to farmers through agricultural extension and other programs. That gave them a very applied outlook and a, and a willing to get their, their hands dirty metaphorically, just like the farmer does, literally. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I'm, I find myself wondering if this is juxtaposed with something. I'll see if I can explain what I'm thinking here. But, um, you know, agricultural economics is sort of one subfield, I guess I'd say. Presumably, there were many others that were also influencing environmental economics. So, um, but you note that this is a particularly important one. And so how does it compare or um, sort of magnify itself compared to some of those other subdisciplines that were also uh, in the in the atmosphere, in the economics uh, atmosphere at the time, if that makes any sense? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it I don't want to say agricultural economics was totally unique in all those things. Um, and economists everywhere, I, th I think they want to be relevant to public policy and, and to make a difference. But there are differences in outlook. Um, uh, you know, you have some economists who might be categorized as uh, taking a position of being a, a high theorist, doing very uh, theoretical work that Others apply their, their theory to more uh, 
practical problems uh, and they're staying away from the, the messiness of those problems themselves. I think you, you sometimes see that. And certainly uh, there are plenty of economic theorists that have had an important mark on environmental economics, um, but maybe uh, not as hands-on an impact. And then you have others who maybe sort of feel that the role of the scientist is to not get involved in practical problems as much. Uh, so um, public finance economists like uh, A.C. Pagu, uh, Pagu is very connected to environmental economists for his theories about externalities and how we can use taxes to correct for them. Um, but he was someone who sort of felt that the, that the role of the economist was uh, to explain uh, the economy uh, and let policymakers make the decisions about what to do with that and to not get too closely involved in the policymaking himself. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to take this opportunity since you're, you know, you're talking about this intersection of economics and, and environmental economics and policy. And, you know, that just really makes me want to ask you a question specifically about RFF. I can't resist um, because that's the intersection at which Resources for the Future sits. And RFF is definitely in this book. I'm very happy to say uh, it's first mentioned on page 25 of the book. Its researchers kind of show up in many pages throughout, which warmed my heart. So um, but I wanted to ask about one particular phrase where you wrote that, quote, RFF serves as a microcosm of the history of environmental economics. I loved that sentence. And I wanted to ask you if you could tell us how so. Absolutely. Well, Resources for the Future arguably invented uh, environmental economics in the 1950s and 60s. If you had to find one place where it happened, uh, that would be it. So RFF is definitely um, very important uh, to the book. It's another place that's very important uh, to my heart as well. I was there from 2001 to 2006 as a fellow when it was celebrating its 50th anniversary at the time. And that was a great opportunity for me. I made many good friends there and learned so much. But why is it a, a microcosm? I think it's a microcosm because it really represents well the transition that happened at at mid-century, say the 50s and 60s, from this thinking about um, natural resources in materialistic ways uh, as inputs into production, it represents the transition from that way of thinking to thinking about the environment uh, much more broadly and uh, as something uh, that supports all of life, um, and also supports many services uh, that we just uh, enjoy aside from uh, the materialistic aspects. And that transition, you can see that transition because um, sort of the immediate prehistory of RFF was something called the, the Paley Commission, um, named for uh, William Paley, who led it. And that was a, a mid-century commission that was looking at uh, natural resource scarcity. Um, and following World War II, and as the U.S. was moving into the Cold War, there was a concern about whether or not the resources were there to maintain our quality of life, our way of life, and frankly, to outlast the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And so the concerns raised by that commission uh, very much led right into RFF. The, the Ford Foundation started RFF based on those concerns. RFF's first output was a mid-century conference on natural resources in that theme. 
And then uh, its first most important books uh, continued that theme and then transitioned away from it. So uh, a book by uh, Neil Potter and Francis Christie came out in 1962 called Trends in Natural Resource Commodities. Uh, it was just basically documenting lots of facts about natural resource scarcity. And then more importantly, right after that, Harold Barnett and Chandler Morse wrote a book called Scarcity and Growth in 1963, where they, they looked at all that data from Potter and Christie and said, you know, we're really not seeing signs of natural resource scarcity here, at least not writ large. Maybe very, very particular resources are, are going scarce. But uh, the big picture is no, prices are not going up. Uh, labor productivity in the extraction industries is not going down. There's really no sign that we're, we're running out of resources or that it's harder to obtain them. And then they close their book by saying, but maybe there's a, another issue that we should be thinking more about. And that is uh, the public good nature of environmental quality and whether environmental quality is declining because markets are not there to take care of that. That was 1963, and within five years of that, you have Alan Kaneza doing his work on pricing water pollution um, to maintain water quality. You see John Cretilla writing a very important essay in 1967 called Conservation Reconsidered, where he introduces the idea of existence values, the values we have just for the um, existence of a, of a beautiful landscape or ecosystem. Um, and so over that time period, uh, the research agenda really changed and that happened at RFF. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it continues to do so. Um, and it's, you know, I've been at RFF for about, it'll be almost 15 years. And um, it is a place where that sense of history is palpable for sure uh the sense of legacy and you know so many of the names that you just mentioned are names that sort of are spoken in in hushed tones if you will people who clearly um did lay the foundation for a lot of a lot of the field and we were privileged to have them work at rff for quite some time so as we get towards the end of our conversation here, I want to look a little bit towards the future of environmental economics, um, particularly because uh, you yourself in the epilogue to the book look that direction, and but you you sort of build on the history that you've described in the previous chapters. And in that epilogue, you describe eight themes that have emerged from that historical perspective, but are likely to be equally relevant moving forward. So let me ask you about those. Can you highlight a few of those themes for us? Yes. Uh, we already talked about the changing definition of economics. I think it'll be interesting to see how that definition continues to change, whether it becomes more about uh, um, measurement as opposed to a particular way of thinking. Um, but measurement itself, I think, is a, is a very important theme in the past and will be going forward. So economists over time have measured more and more things more and more abstract things uh, or intangible things um, with, with constructs that are more and more theoretically abstract. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, there are signs that economists are getting more involved in measuring the impacts on uh, equity or inequality uh, from policies and not just the overall net benefit or cost of a policy. Um, 
we're getting involved in measuring very complex things like the social cost of carbon that I know you've talked about on this podcast. That's a kind of price, but it's just a very complicated one. Uh, we're getting involved with moving uh, GDP um, and other kinds of measures of income and assets in an economy to account for um, natural assets as well. So I think measurement uh, is an important theme. I think economists' role in political controversy is another important theme. Um, one of the issues I talked about, we talked earlier about how when economists were first asked to think about the immaterial values of nature, they said it couldn't be done. They had to do it anyway because they were dragged into it by political controversy and their bosses and government made them do it. I think that kind of thing can continue uh continue to happen as economists work on applied problems. They don't always get to pick what the applications are. Mm-hmm. Spencer, this has been really interesting. And I, I do want to just recommend this book again to our listeners. It's got some wonderful personalities uh, highlighted in it. It's got some kind of wonderful, obviously, historical context, but anecdotes that sort of bring the field to life. Um, it's got some, you know, some good theory and some good kind of economic terminology and figures who many of our listeners will recognize, um, but it really just pulls it together and it's very well written. So I uh, just want to compliment you on it. And thanks for coming on the podcast to share a little bit more about the book with us. Thank you, Kristen. I enjoyed it very much. Great. Well, let me close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Um, we've already been talking here about a book, of course, but I would welcome your recommendations on other good content, really of any type, that you might want to suggest to our listeners. So Spencer, what's on the top of your stack? I think people uh, who are interested in these topics might be interested in a book called Scarcity by uh, Frederick Alberton Johnson and Carl Wennerland that came out last year by Harvard University Press. It looks at different ways uh, economists have thought about what scarcity means and the ability of humanity to overcome it or, or not. And uh, I think any time is a good time to listen to Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. So I recommend that. <laughs> Such a good full circle orchestral recommendation to pull it all the way back to the top of the podcast recording. That was great. Um, I will second that. I um, I love Beethoven Seventh. So I uh, might even subscribe, might even look for an Atlanta Symphony Orchestra recording in your honor <laughs> right. on Spotify. Okay. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Kristen. Me too. You've been listening to Resources Radio a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. 
Join us next week for another episode.